Hello, I'm Manila Chan. You're tuned in to Modus Operandi. It's presently the most populated country on Earth. China, with its nearly 1.4 billion residents, is projecting a dip in population in the coming years, while hawks are predicting a complete bust in its development. Meanwhile, the United States is seeing the slowest birth rates in more than 30 years. So what does that mean for the world's top two superpowers? We'll discuss it. All right, let's get into the MO. They're both economic superpowers as well as militarily the U.S. and China. Some 330 million people in the U.S. as compared to China's whopping 1.4 billion. With China's nearly four to one population, why are some predicting China will collapse on itself because it won't have enough people in the next decade? Now, across the world, there is a birth rate bust, seemingly right in line with an economic slump experienced by everyone. Yet some countries and some ethnic groups are divergent from this trend. Joining us to discuss is writer, scholar, researcher, and activist. He is also a contributor to the book Capitalism on a Ventilator. KJ No is here to weigh in. KJ, I'd like to break up our conversation into two parts. The first part covering the Western world's falling birth rates the United States, the EU, and so forth. And then secondly, we'll go into Asia to include the Middle East as well. Most specifically, uh, we'll focus on China. So first, uh, let's examine the United States. You and I are both here, different coasts, but we're both here. According to the U.S., the official numbers are out. Births in the U.S. have dropped 4% in 2020. The 2021 numbers show a 1% increase year over year. The 2022 numbers aren't out just yet, but generally speaking, there are fewer babies born nowadays than in generations past here in the U.S. Some have blamed economic uncertainty, some blame abortion, some place blame on the destruction of nuclear families in America. What do you see as the primary driver of this generation's lowered birth rates? Yeah, that's a really good question, Manila. I think the first thing is that we have to kind of bracket uh, 2020, 21, 22, because it probably is influenced by COVID. So I think COVID definitely affected the birth rate for a variety of reasons. Uh, but I think the key question is, you know, why is birth rate a problem in developing countries at all? And it's primarily an economic problem. You know, you have the ratio of productive working age people to non-working age people, uh, and that creates a drag on the economy. The way that I understand it is the key issue for lowering birth rates in developed countries is quite simply economic uncertainty, or, you know, let's just name it, increasing poverty and precarity. It's, it's just too hard, too expensive to have children for a lot of uh, young families. Uh, and uh, if we want to take that a little bit further, the cause of this poverty and precarity 
is neoliberalism. You know, the U.S. capitalist economy stalled out in the 70s. The response of the government was to discipline labor and to remove social supports to force more people into the workforce and to work harder and for less. This creates a comp competition to the bottom. You know, it creates increased productivity for a while. But, but when you have all the family members going to work uh, and some of them working two to three jobs, Couples don't have time for each other, let alone children. And so the choice not to have children, you delay it until you feel secure or less precarious, but that day never comes, or when it comes, it's too late. And I think these are some of the core reasons why uh, birth rates are dropping in Western uh, neoliberal states. So until around, I'd say, the 1980s, women in America were vastly outnumbered at universities and colleges around the country. Today, the opposite is true. According to a 2021 Pew Research study, they found that female graduation rates at universities were about 10% higher than their male peers. Now, this is not to say that women getting a college education is a bad thing. Rather, I'd just like to examine how education in America contributes to a decline in birth rates, or does it play a role at all? Well, I think it actually does play a significant role. I mean, just to go back to the history, remember, we call an undergraduate degree a bachelor's degree. And that's because traditionally you were not allowed to be married and study at university. You had the overtones of a monastic vocation. And we still see echoes of that in that if you study, you're not going to be able to go to school with your children. There are very little supports for mothers or parents in university or in any educational setting. I, I personally think that parents and mothers should be able to bring their kids not only to work, but to school. Uh, an intergenerational workplace or academic setting is an absolutely good thing. But by and large, women have had to make a hard choice. Uh, do I go to school, continue my education, or do I have kids? And I think the difficulty is that it's just very, very hard. Uh, on the flip side, you have more women in graduate school uh, than you have men uh, at the current moment. Uh, and of course, uh, the causes are, you know, manifold, but boys tend to drop out of school earlier. They have more opportunities in work or apprenticeship or even manual work. They often have more difficulties in school. They sometimes find it an alienating experience. And of course, education is a way up in a patriarchal society that is stacked against women. So women get more education. Uh, they also do better in school, and they also delay childbirth, which also results in reduced birth rates. Uh, and and I think you know these uh, things can be changed through policy, primarily by creating school as a more child-friendly environment. I always wondered about the name bachelor's degree. Thank you for that. Um, you know, having been an older American mother. Uh, myself, the medical community calls expectant mothers over the age of 35 here geriatric. But, you know, I got married late. I started a family late. And statistics show typically someone like me doesn't tend to have more than one or two babies. I have one. Um, that was due in part to, you know, career chasing and my own personal choices in life, but also because 
the United States doesn't really have any real federal laws that guarantee me any job security or any substantive maternity leave or, you know, good health care for me or my baby. Those were only things I managed to secure for myself with age through the private sector. So, you know, barring my husband from the equation, but do you think the U.S. federal laws such as FMLA undermine America's claims that family is important? Yes, absolutely. You know, I think you're absolutely correct that it undermines uh, this notion that family is important. You know, the uh, FMLA uh, provides a total of 12 work weeks of unpaid leave uh, for, uh, you know, an expectant uh, mother. Uh, and it only applies to companies with 50 or more workers. Uh, and, you know, the fundamental thing is that policy and the budgets attached to it are moral statements. And the simple fact is that the FMLA has no budget backbone. That is to say, it has no moral backbone. So it's a really hypocritical type of policy. Uh, the other thing I'll add is that, you know, very often, as, as you also pointed out, you know, uh, it's often framed as a personal choice whether to have or not to have uh, a child. But as you point out, these personal choices are driven by policy and structural forces. If you don't have job security, maternity leave, health care, it's very, very hard to have children. And if you did, if you didn't have to worry about economics, I think many people would have children and more children and sooner. So KJ, is everything we've discussed here, is this you know, really specific to the US or do you see this more as a common trend or maybe there's a threat over in Western nations, um, including those in Europe? Yes, I think by and large, it's also similar to Western nations. Uh, you know, Western European nations do tend to have better uh, child supports, better maternity leave, but the trend is to diminish and to remove them. And so we see the same types of neoliberal austerity happening across the board. You see the uh, large, you know, uh, movements of fight back against that, but it seems to be largely a losing battle. And so to the extent that they're subject to the same types of neoliberal austerity, you're going to see the same uh, influences that mitigate against having childbirth uh, and, uh, and therefore lowered, uh, you know, uh, birth rates. Coming up next, some analysts believe China will go bust in the next decade with a population decline too rapid to maintain its economy. We'll discuss it with KJ No when we return. Sit tight. The MO will be right back.
So what we've got to do is identify the threats that we have. It's crazy. Confrontation, let it be an arms race. Who is on offense? Very dramatic uh, development. I personally am going to resist. I don't see how that strategy will be successful. Very critical time. Time to sit down and talk. Welcome back to the MO. I'm Manila Chan. Now, if you ask most people outside of Western countries, they'll tell you that the 21st century belongs to China, that the 20th century shined bright for the West. The collective global South seems at odds with what some analysts that predict doom and gloom for China. Writer and researcher KJ No is staying with us to continue this conversation. So KJ, over in Asia for much of the 20th century, China was leading the way in live births. India also. Um, both account for populations in the multi-billions. The collective West often chided Asia for a population boom. Looking back now though, was the birth boom a good thing for the region? You know, just to kind of break it down a little bit, poor countries, they have high birth rates, but they also have high mortality rates. And so then that you get varying population growth rates depending on the country in this specific situation. As the country becomes more developed, the economies improve. And so we see continued high birth rates, but we start to see dropping infant mortality rates. And then that results in the population growth. This is the kind of overshoot period. And then there's a kind of adjustment period where uh, the birth rates start to lower because you don't need to have 10 children just to support yourself. And you also see low mortality rates. And this is stable for a while, but then it leads to low population growth. And then the fourth period is a kind of a drag period when you have low birth rates, low infant mortality, and also increased life expectancy that is, you, not enough working age people, too many elderly, you know, it creates a drag on the economy. It's like having a small engine, but the car or the bus is getting more and more full. Uh, and then, so this is the issue that often uh, developed economies face. And then the fifth stage, which is often what you see in the Western European states, is you have this economic drag, which is dealt with through neoliberalism. And so you have low birth rates, low infant mortality, but no social supports. You get very low birth rates. You have uh, imbalanced economy. And then you start to see increased mortality as well. For example, in the United States, we have the lowest mortality, uh, lowest life expectancy in 30 years. And so these are some of the kind of long-term bad outcomes of a capitalist approach to dealing with this issue. And in certain countries, for example, in Japan, you know, the Japanese say, you know, we are on the verge of collapse. So just to get back to your question, was the birth boom good? You know, it was inevitable, uh, lowered infant mortality, increased life expectancy. You're going to see uh, a boom in China. It was a good thing. It created a vast productive workplace that lifted itself out of, pro uh, out of poverty. In India, it was much less effective because India just kind of muddled through in this proto-capitalist, proto-socialist way. In Kerala, you saw good outcomes. In other places, I think it speaks uh, for itself, the 
immense human misery, uh, the immense poverty. And so starting at the same population, uh, with the same population, same land mass, you know, China is six times wealthier uh, per capita than India. And I think that shows that if you have good planning or a socialist approach to planning, then that can work better and it can harness productive forces and really develop a country. All right, now in the 21st century, China is seeing a slowdown in births. How much of that has to do with uh, perhaps the inescapable Western influence, maybe something like pop culture? Or is this declining birth rate attributable uh, more to China's rapid economic advancement and, and their industrial boom? Uh, you know, I think it's uh, much more attributable to the economic stage at which it's at. So, you know, just kind of to go back, China is in the third phase. Uh, it has a low birth rate. It has a low infant mortality rate. Uh, and that is resulting in lowering population growth. It's the, the overshoot is correcting itself. Infant incomes rise, infant mortality uh, drops. Uh, childbirth drops along with it because you don't need so many children. And then there starts to be an undershoot. So uh, families and women are having less children. Uh, and over time, it falls to or below the replacement rate. Uh, you know, the, the way that China will probably deal with this, it's not going to be, uh, uh, it, it's, not, it's not a problem that is in, unfixable for China. China currently has a very, very low retirement age. You can retire uh, as early as 50 uh, if you want, uh, and often people retire at 55. So there's room for the retirement age to be increased so you have a longer productive workplace. And then the other thing that China is doing, which is really quite astonishing, is it is automating the workplace. So you see incredible amounts of 5 and 6G enabled uh, robots that are doing a lot of the work that was done before by people. And so I think this uh, kind of drag or imbalance of a productive workplace is actually less uh, of a problem for China simply because it plans for the long term and it can see these things uh, coming. Many Western analysts are blaming China's declining birth rate on the old one-child policy. Is that an accurate or even fair assessment? You know, uh, I think it's multiple factors. You know, I think uh, having fewer children was necessary at the time because uh, the population was in that overshoot phase. And so they probably went too much into an undershoot phase through policy. So in 2015, it was corrected to two children, and now it's currently three children. And it's not simply a, a, a policy that, you know, removes constraints, but it has a lot of positive supports, you know, child welfare support, maternity leave. You know, Shanghai has 150 days of maternity leave. Hernan has 190 days, three months of pre-maternity leave. Uh, and when you leave, you get the equivalent of your highest income the previous year or the mean salary of everybody in the company. And so, you know, uh, there are a lot of supports for families and mothers to have children. Uh, and I think this is very positive. As we know, this allows for secure attachment for the child that creates a 
you know, emotionally healthy child. And that, you know, goes a long way to creating a strong, healthy and emotionally uh, healthy workforce. Now, conversely, Japan never had any child policies and they went through a much earlier economic boom in the late 20th century. How do we explain Japan's slowing birth rates today? Well, Japan's slowing birth rates, I refer to it as the fourth and fifth stage, or really the fifth stage. It's the neoliberal breaking when society cannot sustain uh, a workforce to have to be both productive at work and to be productive in having children. And so just to look at the history a little bit, you know, Japan has a neoliberal economy it developed through two large booms in the 1950s and 1960s and 70s. And these were related to the Korean War and the Vietnam War. Japan uh, literally built its economic system through uh, a good measure of war profiteering. It's, you know, industrial giants were war machines and they developed during this period flush with money from the Korean War and the Vietnam War. And this momentum kept it going to the 1980s and it became very big and economically powerful. The US saw this as a threat and it decided it was going to cut it down to size, in particular using the Plaza Accords. And this gutted key industries like Toshiba. Uh, and so Japan has never recovered from that shock it's a stagnant economy. It stumbles along. Its wages have been stagnant for 30 years. And that shift from developmental capitalism to neoliberalism or abenomics failed completely. And so in Japan currently, what you see is people working too hard. Husbands sometimes don't see their wives. Uh, you know, they come home and they drop dead from fatigue. Japan has a term, karoshi, which means death from overwork. Uh, same thing with South Korea, which is facing a similar issue. And so you simply have lots of people who are employment age, who simply have given up. Uh, they've given up having family and jobs. Uh, and, uh, you know, Japan, uh, according to the statistics, currently it has a population of 128 million, 128 million, but it had 800,000 births last year. Uh, and it has the second highest proportion of aged people of any country in the world. And so uh, Kishida, uh, according to Kishida, he says that, you know, um, he wants to double the spending on child programs, but I don't see that happening with its remilitarization. Japan's population will fall from its current 128 million to less than 53 million by the end of the century. So they are in uh, very, very deep trouble. Wow, talk about a rat race, having a phrase for it. Um, Russia is in a unique position. They sit mostly on the Asian continent. Uh, they look like Europeans, but they share family values more similar to Asian culture and their government supports women who have babies, such as giving them one full year of maternity leave as part of a universal law across the Federation. Now, they've been industrialized for over 100 years. I'm oversimplifying all of this, of course, but how do China's mat leave policies compare to those in Russia? 
Um, I think they compare very, very favorably. But before I get into that, I just want to point out this kind of Asian European, um, you know, uh, perspective about Russia. Uh, George Kennan was the architect of U.S. Cold War containment policy against Russia. And somebody once asked him, why can't we coexist peacefully with Russia? He gave a long-winded explanation. And then he got tired of talking and he just kind of came out with, he says, the Russians are an Asiatic race. And so we see that in the current moment where the Russia, uh, where the West considers uh, Russia Asian and, you know, uh, uh, an enemy state or a threat. So we have that legacy coming all the way down. But uh, comparing China versus Russia, I think they compare uh, quite favorably. In Russia and also in the post-Soviet states, there is the legacy of the Soviet socialist system. So, you know, mothers are given, uh, you know, uh, uh, at least 140 days maternity leave. If you have multi multiple births, it's much longer. Uh, you get, uh, you know, uh, 11,000 plus rubles per month, etc., uh, China has comparable uh, supports. Sometimes it's better. It depends on the actual uh, province. But the state uh, uh, mandates 98 days of post-maternity leaves, leave, and you can have between one to three months uh, additional uh, regional leave. So that takes you close to about 160 or even 190 days, depending on which uh, province you live in. And then you also get, uh, in certain uh, areas, 90 days pre-maternity leave. Uh, in Shanghai, you get you know, parental leave for three years after birth. Uh, and they also have miscarriage and abortion leaves, which ranges from 15 to 75 days. I think these are really important. Uh, necessary considerations and the fact that, you know, these uh, things don't even exist in the United States, I think, speaks again, again, to the terrible gaps that we have. Uh, I'll, I'll just point out that both Russia and China are not wealthy countries. China has one fifth of the US GDP. But if it can allow, you know, 190 days of uh, maternity leave, I think that's something we should definitely learn from China. All right, KJ, no, we'll, we got to leave that right there. You're uh, much appreciated for your thoughts and insight. He's a, also a contributor, everybody, to the book Capitalism on a Ventilator. Thank you so much, KJ. Thank you. All right, that's going to do it for this week's episode of Modus Operandi, the show that digs deep into foreign policy. I'm your host, Manila Chan. Thank you so much for tuning in. We'll see you again next week to figure out the MO.